Pro Se, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. Good to be back. Yeah, nice to have you back. And also, Alex Lawson. Hi, guys. How are we all doing? Well, the gang's all here. I think we got a lot of stuff to cover today, so it's nice to have all three of us in, in the... I was about to say in the studio, but we can't ever say that anymore. We're all in our respective homes. Our respective uh, quadrants (laughs) of the New York City area. (laughs) These are are week one pandemic rookie mistakes, Amber. Let's let's really tighten this up. Wishful thinking, maybe? Something like that. We do Um, have an interesting show today, though. We do. I mean, uh, I'm back at work, and uh, kids are heading back to school. Uh, Everyone's getting ready for uh, for the fall, and... uh, I don't need to tell anyone that that's uh, a difficult thing this year. There are uh, all sorts of problems with uh, kids heading back to school. And one of the big problems is for their parents and people who work and the legal issues that that causes. So we're going to be breaking it all down later in the show, the the novel employment law issues, how big law firms are dealing with it. Uh, it's a really interesting chat. We do. We uh, we. Uh, have really in- there's obviously lots of interesting parameters there. We also have uh, exciting developments in gaming law, which we'll talk about in a little bit. However, before we do that, uh, we are back on the uh, Trump judicial nominee beat, uh, which we haven't done in a while, but there was some interesting news on that uh, this week. Yeah, we've talked about it a bunch in the context of how many judges the president yeah. has nominated um, right. relative to how how long he's been in office, but. This week we're talking not about quantity but about age, uh, thanks to the nomination of a very young uh, Jones Day associate to serve as a federal district judge in Florida. Well, let's just let's let's get the facts out of the way first. Who are we talking about here? Who is who's been fortunate enough to be nominated uh, uh, by Trump as latest judge selection? Uh, we're talking about Catherine Kimball Mazel, uh, who earlier this month the president nominated to be uh, a United States District Court judge for the Middle District of Florida. Um, she is a litigation associate at Jones Day. Um, she she has the the early career resume hits that you associate with a future judge. She spent four years at DOJ. She had four very prestigious uh, federal clerkships, including one at the U.S. Supreme Court under Justice Clarence Thomas. And uh, she's now at Jones Day, which most of our listeners don't need to be told is a very elite big law firm. uh, And she's had success there. So like I said, the, the sort of typical outline early on in a career of of a federal judge, the issue is how early on in that career she is now that she's been nominated. I feel like we're asking you to almost drop the punchline now. Like, what age are we talking about here? Younger than us. I was going to say, she's, Don't you're, love you're, that. You're, you're, you're the youngest pro se host, and she's younger than you. So uh, I am it, 33 yeah. years young, uh, yes. and uh, Mizell turned 33 last month. Um, okay. Uh, okay. So young. Um, she graduated uh, from undergrad in 2009 and from law school in 2012. Um, as as I mentioned, she has a pretty great resume. She spent four years at at the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, mostly at the tax division as a trial attorney. So she was in court a lot. Um, but for a federal judge, uh, her litigation experience is somewhat limited. She has tried only two cases to verdict. Now, there's all sorts of caveats about how many cases actually go to verdict. But yeah. um, in in the eight years since she graduated from law school, she has tried just two cases. To a verdict. So um, 
you know, there are ways you can sort of go either way. And, and I don't need to say that with a politically charged issue like this, you can really go both ways. But um, but under any sort of uh, rubric, she has a pretty limited resume with with court experience. Now, I will say as a as a resident old millennial, I was looking forward to millennial judges and their rise. Now, I just thought we might have to wait another decade or so, um, but she's been nominated. And I do think, you know, there there's a couple different like it's not it's not always, you know, such a conversation about age as it is like experience, as you were kind of hinting at there. But the age is obviously what people are talking about this week. How young is 33 for a federal judge uh, position, like relatively through the arc of history? Before we get to that, I just wanted to address your millennial judge comment. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think I think due to repeated recessions, I think we're just going to skip millennial judges and we're going to go straight to Gen Z judges. Oh, man. Um, they're just going to vape up there. Uh, it's going to be TikTok phase clan. In lieu of, uh, yeah, yeah. In lieu of opinions. But anyway... Uh, yeah, so let's let's frame this a little bit in like the history of uh, of judges. I mean, thirty three is very young. Just to yeah. to sort of put the lead up front, um, uh, Mizell would be the youngest federal judge in over thirty years appointed to the bench. Um, there there are no age requirements in the Constitution the way that there are for the presidency and for Congress. Um, but a 2017 study by Congressional Research Service said that the average age of a federal judge at appointment is about 50. Mm. Uh, so 17 years older than Mizell. Um, of 570 active judges at the time in 2017, yeah. just two had been appointed under the age of 35. So, again, has a decent resume, but but very young. So, I mean, the statistics you just presented, it does sound like an outlier. I mean, we can probably agree on that at least, but um, I know people are pretty quick to be like, an unprecedented thing has happened. Is that true? I mean, have we had really young people in the past? How, how's that gone? You know, if we look back in history, it's less unprecedented now. <laughs> uh, that was a very eloquent sentence. Um, I know what you're saying though. Uh, yeah. uh, under, yeah. under president Trump, uh, uh, he's a president who has loved to tout his success at appointing not only lots of judges, but uh, young judges who will be serving lifetime appointments. And he's done so quite a bit. Um, a, a recent Alabama pick, uh, Edmund G. LaCour, turned 35 in February. Uh, Allison Jones Rushing, who was appointed to the Fourth Circuit, uh, a federal appeals court, also made headlines when she was nominated at the age of 36. Uh, Roy Altman was nominated at 37. I could go on, but there are mm-hmm. um, there are at least 22 other Trump appointees who were appointed below the age of 40 um, in in the year they were nominated. Uh, and as I said, this is you know it's not something that the administration is hiding. Last year, the president proudly noted that his circuit court picks were. Uh, about 10 years younger than than the picks that President Obama had made at the same point. Yeah, it's um, it's I'll be fascinated to see what happens when she goes before the Judiciary Committee. I don't know when that'll be. But I mean, how much of the com- how much of the questions she'll face will be just about age versus like threading the needle on experience. I know I can think of I was just reading about this today. There were two 
Trump appointees, and there's Matthew Peterson for the D.C. federal uh, uh, federal court, and Brett Talley in Alabama, who had to withdraw mm-hmm. over the last couple of years yeah. because they had never tried to case to verdict. It was right. I, I forget how old those guys were, but I mean they, it was it was an experienced question. So that is also not unprecedented. It'll be interesting to see how it goes. And as we've hinted, that th- this process has become so much more politically charged in the yeah. last few years. Uh, you know, overlaid on this uh, is needless to say all sorts of issues about. You know how conservative she will be, uh, the, the all sorts of other things like that. So, um, you know, this will be something that will be fiercely discussed, I think, in uh, in the coming weeks, and we will see whether or not she gets through. Well, we've already had one Gen Z mentioned today. I thought I'd be the first one uh, to mention that with this next story, but they are certainly paying attention to this next case that we'll talk about because uh, we are in the throes of a huge antitrust battle that is rocking the gaming world. Uh, the company that develops Fortnite has basically picked uh, this huge fight with uh, Apple and Google over those companies' app store policies, and it has already resulted in the banning of Fortnite from those two companies' app stores, and it's already spilled into the courtroom. We got a ruling from California federal judge this week that will actually keep the Fortnite ban in place, but this is just beginning, and there's a million sort of interesting uh, things to talk about. This is so I'm glad we're getting to this because the the you know the the power that these companies have in terms of their app stores I think is such a you know a, an issue ready to be discussed in the courts that that uh, you know and and what better way to do it than Fortnite which is obviously you know I think some of our older listeners might not know but it is like ridiculously popular. I've written yeah. about it a couple times over the last couple of years and mm-hmm. just the amount of money and the amount of users they have are it's preposterous. So mm-hmm. how how did all this get started with with you know with Fortnite pushing back on on Apple and Google? Well, it really is like um it's a challenge of like a very core you talked about the the influential nature of these app stores. We actually talked about it a couple weeks back with TikTok, you know, stripping that. That's an entirely different issue, but like being in the store, and so few of these companies have these stores, is so important. And basically what this is, is a challenge of both of those companies, Apple and Google, have a policy of basically charging a 30% commission for all purchases that are made on apps that they host in their stores. Like if you're playing Fortnite, there's a million different checkpoints to have what are called in-app purchases, whether you're purchasing sort of new kits for your characters or, you know, you know, there, there's, there's a million different things you can buy while you are playing the game. And when you purchase something in Fortnite, that money goes to Apple or Google, who then pay out to the developer. The developer, in this case, is Epic Games. They are the ones who basically started this fight. Um, then they, you know, like I said, the Apple and Google pay out to Epic after taking their 30% cut for themselves. Uh, Epic is not a fan of this, as you might imagine, um, and they basically sort of took matters into their own hands earlier this month, just a couple weeks ago. They updated Fortnite with this new cheaper payment option for in-app purchases that basically funnel payments from customers to Epic directly at a, at a lower rate, less that 30%, which basically cuts Apple and Google out of that process entirely, and they basically laid down a gauntlet to those companies. I can imagine uh, Apple and Google didn't take that well. Yeah. Um, no, they, they, they responded immediately by, like I say, they yanked Fortnite off of their respective app stores. And that in turn drew a legal challenge from Epic that basically challenges the entire app store payment process as an illegal monopoly. They, um, Apple also uh, incidentally went a step further than Google. They cut off Epic's access to these special development tools, which we'll talk about in a second. But the thrust of the lawsuit is that 
you know, Epic says that Apple and Google have monopolized app distribution streams for iPhones and Androids, which basically block developers who use those stores from reaching customers outside these marketplaces. So they're saying like you, you, you control it from the top down. No one else sort of wedges into this marketplace at all. Um, and you've basically rigged it in favor of yourselves. This one's so interesting because it really feels like we may see, depending on how this pans out, a lot more suits like this because yeah. this is really the vanguard of how businesses are doing business. 100%. Um, so maybe we can focus a little bit more on the suits to give us the lowdown of, of what's being argued at this point. Yeah, the Apple suit is is is. Uh, proceeding a little more quickly. So like I said, uh, Epic has sued Google and Apple. We'll talk about the Apple suit here. Like I say, it's just a little further along. So um, when they filed their suit, uh, Epic also asked for an injunction that basically asked the court to reinstate Fortnite in the Apple App Store. Um, the judge who's hearing the case did not buy that. And it's a this is a really interesting sort of legal development. They said you know, we can let this case play out on the merits. Maybe this, maybe you, 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 you might prove that this is an illegal monopoly type of activity. But they, but she nodded to the fact that Fortnite sort of willingly breached the terms of its contract with Apple and that the court cannot undo like self-inflicted harm. They're saying like, right. we, we can't put you back on the store because, you know, you're, you're saying this is causing you irreparable harm, but you are the one who prompted them to do this. So, you took the risk, Epic. This is yeah. how it panned out. Yeah. Well, that's a huge deal because not only can you not download Fortnite on those stores right now, but you can't update them either. And this is a game, not to get too far into the world of Fortnite, but it hinges on like these seasonal rollouts of new features and new levels and like having the newest version of it is sort of like the entire, like it's an ever-expanding universe that's like the appeal of playing the game. The newest season actually debuts today, uh, August 27th, as we're talking, and the game is mostly defunct on those two major platforms if you want to try and play the newest version of it. It feels Uh, like a game of chicken between these two enormous you know right like they're they're exerting their market for their like power to to say you have to use this system we have yeah and and epic is saying well we've become powerful enough that we can pull ourselves back and it's just seeing who has more you know it's it's fascinating it's also really tricky i i think this is really tricky too because of the way that the market works with games where mm-hmm. the legal system is obviously going to be much slower than the appetite for new gaming yeah. content. Yeah. So you're going to see this push and pull of like if a company takes this gambit and they're not in the store and they can't update the game, will people just decide Fortnite's not it anymore and they don't really want to play it. They've moved on to something else. Yeah, it's interesting. I I I would love to know if they thought that they cuz like the 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 lawsuit was filed so quickly after the ban came down that it was it, it became pretty clear that this was a this was a calculated move that they had in sure. mind. I would love to know if they thought they would get this um injunction and get back in the App Store. Right. Or if that's like I mean, I'm sure that they were well, sure they obviously preferred that. That's why they argued for it. Um but uh they did get a partial win though. So while they while the game is still banned from those App Stores, the judge did order Apple to restore the company's access to these developer tools um epic has this thing called the unreal engine and this is a tool that that third-party developers use to like make their own games and build their own online stuff all the time and for that to work properly they need access to apple's tools um so the judge restored access to that and because of that she kind of to the point you were saying amber the marketplace is so unique here she was like blocking off these developer tools unfairly disadvantages like 
hundreds of companies that aren't even a part of this lawsuit at all. Right. It's sort of overly retaliatory. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's interesting. So sort of a mixed bag for Epic here in the early going. Uh, but these are fascinating early developments, and I'm sure uh, the entire industry is watching very closely. you guys, but it feels like this coronavirus pandemic's been going on for seven years, a thousand months, who can say? <laughs> Time um, is a but flat circle. <laughs> it yes. really is. And one thing that has really reared its head at this point, um, among all the other problems, is what schools are going to do about reopening. So yeah. you're seeing a mixed bag across the country about what's happening, but it's time for kids to go back to school. So many of them are opting for a remote plan for students, virtual learning. Um But that's causing some downstream problems, too, where so many parents have to participate in some way in setting up their kids and being part of their school days that now employers are having problems because all of those parents can't do both. (laughs) They can't be dealing with their kids at home, virtual learning, and also the obligations they have to their jobs. So I wanted to talk today about all of those issues and how unprecedented and weird this moment in history is for those reasons. Yeah, the, the the longer this goes on, like the sort of architecture of human society just presents new problems. Like now, like this, it's just it is normally the time we go back to school, and nothing much has changed substantively in the U.S. Will, like with regard to the you know yeah. I will never forget Alex and I talking about <laughs> as the pandemic really started rolling, where we're like, man. Are there like all the courts are going to shut down? I wonder if I wonder if we're all going to get fired. And then we're like, <laughs> ten seconds later, we were like, oh no, there's going to be so many lawsuits, <laughs> so many lawsuits. Well, yeah, and that is true. Well, I mean, there's just so many problems to work through, right? And the last time we faced a pandemic, it was a hundred years ago. So you just didn't have the same family structure issues. You didn't have uh, women in the workplace the same way. So this is right. what's plaguing employers right now. That you know. It's so unprecedented that there's no real guidance to go by. And I don't want to say employers are freaking out because maybe I'm overstating that just a little, but it's pretty close to that. They just aren't sure what to do. Um, Braden Campbell wrote about these issues for us, particularly one law that has posed a lot of problems. It's the Family First Coronavirus Response Act. That's the one that was passed at the start of the pandemic, Mm -hmm. offered a lot of protections, but it also obligates employers um, to offer some um, leave and other things to workers, and it's causing a ton of confusion. So you can you can imagine all the different difficulties which we've kind of which we're vaguely nodding to here but let's talk about you know we're we're talking about this law that they passed in March which is part of the first batch of big you know coronavirus relief um if you are a parent and you're and you're juggling work demands and family demands what are the obligations that 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 your employer has in terms of support that they have to give you yeah, so this law was an emergency measure, and it yeah. temporarily expands both family and medical leave. Mm-hmm. Under the law, you can get paid time off if you can't work rela- for reasons tied to the coronavirus. That includes two weeks of paid sick leave um, at partial pay if you can't work because you have to take care of a child whose school has closed. 
plus another 10 weeks of family leave for the same reason. I mean, it Mm -hmm. has a few more limitations, but that's the gist of it. So there's a chunk of leave that workers can get from their employers that they're obligated to offer. Um, If a covered uh, employer says no and denies that leave, they can be sued by the worker themselves or they can face an action by the labor department. That seems fairly straightforward. I mean, I, I assume where you wouldn't be devoting uh, an entire segment to it if it was, but uh, I don't know. That seems like if you, you know, if if your kid is home from school, then you have some extra uh, leave time that you can use for that. Why is that not the case? Classic pro se setup here. I always bring something. And I'm like, yeah, here's how it works. And then I'm like, yeah, it's not that easy. And this is one of those. Um, an issue that comes up a lot is a misunderstanding about when a worker can actually request for this time off. Um, the relevant part of the law allows workers to take time off if their child's school is, quote, has been closed due to COVID-19 precautions. That sounds straightforward, but when you break it down, the problem is that different school districts are taking different approaches to classes during the pandemic. Yeah. And some are giving parents the option of either online or in-person classes. Oh. It's very understandable that many families want the online because they're concerned about whether or not their kids will go to school and actually contract COVID. They're worried about the rates in the places they live. But if you opt for remote learning for your kids, mm. but the but the kids could be in a classroom because it is a choice you had, you're not allowed, I'm sorry, you're not owed the leave yeah. under mm. the family's first law. That is interesting. I mean, if it, there's, there have... The entire coronavirus response has like towed some balance of like what I'm being told to do and how much and like, you know, me being trusted to make safe decisions for myself and my family. So you can see how this can maybe create some legal uncertainties. Yeah. What, are, what 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 else? What what, what it, other difficulties are we looking at? Of course, it even though? gets worse from there in yeah, terms sure. of the wrinkles here. <laughs> yeah. um, an issue that comes up a lot for employers is requests for what's called intermittent leave. That's mm-hmm. where workers take like a fraction of their leave allotment at a time, and that might be great for a worker. I mean, you can imagine many scenarios with kids at home virtual learning where a parent might need to take a few hours a day or one day a week when the kids are in an actual classroom other days, things like that. But that's super tough on employers, particularly for certain industries, where they have a lot of logistical reasons that they need a set schedule for their workers. Right. So there may be some push and pull there about whether or not intermittent leave can happen. And under the family's first law, whether or not you can get this kind of leave is pretty murky. Yeah, I mean, the 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 phrase itself, intermittent leave, is already somewhat like imprecise on its own but what about it makes it so unclear in this context yeah so it's made more complicated because of an actual legal decision on this so earlier this month um a judge in the southern district of new york said the labor department had exceeded its authority in imposing some restrictions through a rule related to this these leave provisions what's important here is that the judge struck down part of the rule that said workers can take intermittent leave only if their employer agrees to let them do it. Um, it's unclear if that ruling applies nationwide. That wasn't spelled out in the Southern District of New York ruling. And so a lot of attorneys are like, where does this leave us and what we can tell our clients to do? Mm-hmm. Um, they're advising for some caution here that employers should treat it as if they don't have to get just uh, an employer okay and that that's yeah. still part of the law. Um, because if they go with the Southern District of New York interpretation and it proves that that's not nationwide, um, they could be on the hook for, like I said, lawsuits from the workers who are denied leave. 
So do you err on the side of taking, you know, a pretty permissive approach with your employees? I mean, what 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 should an employer do when faced with that murky situation? Yeah, it's you know, there's some understandable um, factors butting up against each other. It's really hard to run companies and, and certain businesses not knowing how much you should let workers take the leave that the workers really need for their personal lives to be functional. So what a lot of attorneys are saying is to be as permissible as you can. Um, to There's some soft reasons that that's a really good strategy. One of them is just plain old morale. I mean, you want to keep workers as happy and productive as Look possible. Look around and, you. Yeah, it's really hard to do that in a pandemic anyway, let alone yeah. dealing with their kids at home. Um, but also... I mean, I'm very hopeful for this too, but someday we'll be out of this, guys. We'll be we'll conquer coronavirus in some capacity and get back to normal. I don't really know if, about that, but go on. Fingers yeah. crossed. <laughs> stay positive. Um, and if we get to that point in the future, you don't yeah. want to have alienated a bunch of top talent at your company. So sure. the idea is put in that goodwill now, try to make it work on the employer side so that workers can stick with you and they won't have to quit their jobs because a lot of workers right now are facing the idea of, you know, if I can't get some kind of leave or some kind of accommodation, I have to put my kids first. And that's a tough spot for a worker to be in. And beyond even just the idea of you want to do right by the people who are very important to your business, they're, they're, I think from reading Braden's story, there's more legal issues too. If you just, if you're, if you're ultra permissive too, you can almost step into new problems. It just isn't that the way. There's problems every every turn you make. Um, yeah, one thing that can come up here is that if you deny leave to caregivers who say they need to stay home with their kids during this time, but you grant leave to other workers, you could get into what people refer to as caregiver discrimination. Mm-hmm. And those lawsuits, you know, not always in a pandemic context, but in the past, it's typically typically been a woman who's accusing her employer of treating some workers worse because they have family responsibilities. So like you'd grant work from home to a man, but you would deny it to a woman who has young children. So that can give rise to its own set of lawsuits. One specific type of employer that we talk a lot about on this show uh, is, is the law firm. And um, before we go, we wanted to quickly hit on what some of the law firms are doing. Not so much in the context of, the you know granular labor law stuff we were talking about before but more the you know the 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 best practices sort of industry uh talent retention kind of approach you know mm-hmm. be be good to your people kind of yeah. approach yeah um, <laughs> it'll be good to have some examples out there for you know what firms are trying to do at this time yeah so um our industry reporter abra co wrote a really great story last week everyone should head over to law360.com and give that one a read um but about what the various big firms are doing out there to to try to help the folks who are parents and who are trying to juggle having kids at home doing remote learning and still being a high-powered attorney. Um, so many firms have tried to just offer enhanced access or information to existing resources that the firm already had, either just generally or uh, something that they set up when the pandemic started. Uh, so th- th- that means, you know, in terms of childcare support, flexible work hours, resources like that, a lot of firms have these things in place, but people might not know how to use them or how to use them effectively as part of, you know, I have crazy partner as my boss and I don't know how to use this. <laughs> you know, here's here's a website that sort of explains to you how all this stuff works. Um, Reed Smith uh, launched a 
dedicated website that's going to be updated with all sorts of information about this. Uh, Littler Mendelssohn created a, a devoted app to this to sort of walk their uh, mm-hmm. their attorneys through. Other law firms are trying to facilitate the the parents who work at the firm to talk to each other, talk to the firm, be transparent and have a dialogue about this as opposed to just sitting there and, you know, trying to do work at one in the morning because you were homeschooling your kids that day. Um, Blank Rome set up a a parenting affinity group specifically uh, that it had been started during the pandemic and now it's been sort of shifted specifically to kids going back to school amid the pandemic. Um, yeah. It's called BR Parents Forum. It's designed to let people network and talk about this stuff and say here's what i'm doing here's what might work figure out what works you know in the hyper specific context of blank rome so maybe that's something that firms can do to you know within their own culture uh to to help their attorneys um fully lardner set up a, a dedicated like slack channel i don't think it was slack but something of that nature to yeah the the internal communication whatever exactly just facilitate Mm -hmm. discussions about this because that will will help people um uh, i mean i think we talk all the time on the show not in this context about issues with parenting during a pandemic because it's very specific but more generally about things like um depression that could hit attorneys substance abuse problems um all these work-life balance things that attorneys in particular are a profession where they feel like they have to just be tough all the time. So creating places and spaces where it's okay to talk about it seems like a really good move right now. Absolutely. Um, and, and one last thing we wanted to hit on was uh, that, that Abra mentioned in her story was Reed Smith has, um, uh, they're, they're, they're apparently working to provide backup childcare and tutoring support to parents through um, an existing program, but that, that has been expanded now as kids are starting to go back to school. Um, the firm has apparently added more to sort of beefed up uh, this system whereby it it works with this third party vendor to offer parents. I think the the I think it was fifteen days of emergency backup childcare yeah. um, when their usual childcare falls through. So um, that's really a concrete thing that maybe other firms can can replicate. Um, needless to say, I think any of the parents out there will maybe be listening and going. Yeah, this is okay. I, I don't know that this is gonna <laughs> fix things, and it it, sure. it, it probably it, you know it it won't fix things. We're in it's it's a it's a really really tough situation for the working parents out there. But this is a start, and and here's hoping that as we move forward into the fall, we'll have more uh, good stories to report about firms stepping up and helping uh, their their parents who are who are there as attorneys. show is something offbeat and alex i know you've got some good stuff for us to talk about off beats this week yeah (laughs) wow um great so yeah they uh uh they're making a movie out of the martin shkreli uh wu-tang clan album caper thing so fantastic i want to talk about that just for a little bit uh maybe we should reset people with what that means because i immediately my eyes got big. I'm very excited to talk about it, but people might not remember the connection between Shkreli and Wu Tang. 
I had forgotten like the sequencing of the events because I think people generally know the broad strokes. Anyway, it was announced today. This is going to be a Netflix movie. Uh, it, it'll be you know hitting the streaming platform sometime uh, in the next couple of years or something. Um, but you know, most people remember Martin Shkreli uh, as a you know drug price gouger and then later a convicted securities fraudster. But before any of that happened, he paid $2 million uh, for the loan pressing of the Wu-Tang Clan album Once Upon a Time in Shaolin. They recorded this album, again, made one pressing of it, and they auctioned it off to what was at that time an anonymous bidder for $2 million. And the album has all kinds of crazy... The, the, the clause of that or rather the the contract that enabled that sale has all kinds of clauses about it can't be publicly released until like the year 2103 uh you there's like resale restrictions and things like that when it came to light that the guy who bought the album was uh this guy Shkreli who became infamous for gouging uh the price of an HIV medicine the Wu-Tang Clan like said they were going to devote they they were going to donate a bunch of the stuff a bunch of the money he paid them to charity and all of that um there have been a lot of different I spent a, I spent more time than I care to admit today trying to figure out where the album is right now. Oh, that's um, a great question. Did you get anywhere with that? I not really. The last it was like directly referenced in a news story that I found was at the end of 2018 when a judge ordered him to basically hand the album over to the government as part of like this part of the asset forfeiture that came with oh, his fraud right. conviction. Well, yeah, it's a big asset. He paid two million dollars for it. But it's not clear to me, at least uh, that 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 the government now has it. He attempted to sell it on eBay at one point, which violated the terms of the sale. I guess that's the question with the, the court trying to get it too, right? That if you can't resell it, is it even an asset at this point? Like he paid a lot of money for a thing that has no secondary value. Yeah. Um, Cause it was, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really crazy that this like experimental sort of marketing promotion that the Wu-Tang clan did then by complete happenstance spilled into this whole other you know, legal proceeding with this guy who became like a huge firebrand and all okay. of that. Okay, well, you know. But anyway, how it's, it's going to be a movie. We're all going to we're all going to learn know how more much about I love it. I a suppose. Netflix movie or an Amazon or Hulu, all of them. I mean, I watched both fire festival documentaries. <laughs> That's how deep in I go. <laughs> yes, so yes. we've talked about Shkreli several times on Pro Se. I'm definitely going to watch this movie. I'd like us to cast the movie. I don't think they announced the cast yet. Chalamet with weird facial prosthetics. Wow. I like that. I, th I, like, I got that, a few on my list. Um, yeah, go for it. Well, I'd like to give you my two runners-up and then the one that I really think should do it. My okay. runners-up, Toby Maguire as Shkreli. Oh, yeah. If he did emo Spider-Man again. Sure. Yep. Or yeah. Casey Affleck I could see as Shkreli. I had Casey Affleck here. Now, Amber, I had some notes. This is in the margins. He is a little on the older side. He's like oh, 10 years older well, than Shkreli. Also, you know. also pseudo canceled. So we have that to contend with. Shkreli yeah, I was also say canceled. Have, I don't know. Have. It feels right to me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's okay. true. But uh, here's my top one. Reasons. This is yeah. the one I really think should do it. Daniel Radcliffe. Oh. Oh. I, hadn't I stand by that. that. He loves to take on a quirky, unusual role. That's true. So that he, he has been doing that. He's done a lot, a lot of, of things on purpose to get out of the Harry Potter mold. Right. This could be great. I thought... What, uh, yeah, go ahead, Bill. Sorry. Well, I was going to say, what could be more similar to Harry Potter than an awful guy who raised the price of AIDS medication. I mean, very similar want, characters. Similar if guys. If you want your, your career to encompass all types of roles, this is the move for you, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, I had uh, I had um, Michael Sarah going really scuzzy with it, maybe. 
Jason Schwartzman. Uh, Jason oh, Schwartzman, Jason I think, could, could kill this. Good. Yeah. Uh, Dane DeHaan, uh, who played uh, uh, Ryan Gosling's kid in the middle sure. act of uh, Place, uh, Place Beyond the Pines. <laughs> Uh, a couple other ones here. Uh, Benjamin Braffman, of course, was uh, um, he's like the sort of the, the famous defense attorney. He was Shirelli's attorney. Sure. I just thought Travolta could run back the Robert Shapiro gig. Uh, <laughs> That's as, always yeah, good. As yeah. famous defense attorney with a crazy wig. Uh, that yeah. could be good. Um, with regard to the Wu-Tang Clan themselves, um, they could all play themselves. They have all like acted at oh, this point. Oh, that would be the best. In, uh, uh, but I thought for the RZA, Mahershala Ali is a pretty decent. Oh, sure. Great. Uh, We're really classing case. up the joint with that pick. I love it. Sterling K. Brown, I think, works for the Jizza. Uh, mm-hmm. I know I Idris Elba gets kind of go get gets like fantasy ha- fantasy casted in, in everything, everything. But if he packed on some pounds and did Ghostface, I think he could be in for some <laughs> for some hardware there. I but. can't wait for when we put this movie on uh, a future pro se as one of our favorite. Oh, legal we're movies. definitely going to talk about it. Yes. So <laughs> so yeah. Uh, let that marinate. Uh, if you have if you have your own fantasy casting uh, suggestions for the Shkreli movie, slide into the DMs of Pro Se Podcast. Uh, you know how to get us. So uh, yeah. Guys, it's been a really great show. Loved to end it on that high note of fantasy casting. Never thought I'd get to do that on this show. Uh, thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you next week, guys. I also want to thank our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, and our contributing reporters this week, Andrew Craigie, Brian Koenig, Dorothy Atkins, Abra Coe, and Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like our show, we'd love for you to leave a written review wherever you're listening. Five stars, written review helps other people find us. And if you want to read more about anything we talked about today, check out our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.